we are in our last week in our series in the life of David. Uh, it has been a joy, and it has been challenging for me, let me tell you, uh, to go through these two books. Uh, but man, it has been awesome. And so today, we will kind of do uh, an overview of what are we supposed to think about David? <laughs> How are we to think about David? If you've been here the last two weeks, um, it has been a challenge to look at the story of David and um, walk away with an understanding of how we are to think about him. And so at the end of 2 Samuel, uh, we get a song from David. I'm not going to read to you the entire chapter. I'm going to read to you from verses, verses 1 through 4, and then 21 through 25. And we'll kind of jump around throughout the whole chapter, but those are the two sections that we're going to read right now. 2 Samuel 22, starting in verse 1. It says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You saved me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. Now jump down to verse 21. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statues I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt, and the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. Well, like I mentioned, the last two weeks have, were pretty heavy, um, and so I wanted to start off today a little bit lighter. I don't usually start off a sermon with a joke. I think that's a little cliche, um, but today I thought this would be fun. We're, we're talking about the last words, or really the summarization of uh, David's life. And so I thought it would be fun to look at some famous last words from some others. So here's a few that I went down a rabbit hole this week uh, that I found interesting. The famous musician, jazz musician, Buddy Rich. Anybody in here know Buddy Rich? Um, so Buddy Rich uh, unexpectedly died in surgery in 1987. But as he was on his way to the OR, a nurse asked him if there was any kind of medicine he could not take. And he responded with, yeah, country music. And then he died. Um, during the Civil War, a general of the Union Army was standing before his men when a sniper started shooting at him and his men. And his men started to run away, to cower, and to get on the ground. And so he started yelling at them, right? He started to yell at one of his guys. He said, stand up, man. They couldn't hit an ele elephant at this dist. And he died. Uh, someone walked in to see W.C. Fields. He's an old, famous actor. Uh, someone walked in to see him reading the Bible on his deathbed. And when someone asked why he was reading the Bible, which he, they had never seen him do, he responded with, I'm looking for loopholes. And then he died. Um, I also went down a rabbit hole of tombstones. And I've got some great ideas for my tombstone. Um, but here was my favorite tombstone message, okay? Um, here lies my wife. I bid her goodbye, she rests in peace, and now so do I. 
Now, the writer of 1st and 2nd Samuel, I don't usually start like that, but that was fun. Uh, it's usually serious talking here, but uh, we got to relieve ourselves somehow. Uh, the writer of 1st and 2nd Samuel will use a song in chapter 22 to essentially summarize David's life. It's supposed to, what we're supposed to walk away from the book thinking about David. Now, you get his actual last words in chapter 23, but we just don't have time uh, to do both chapters. So we're going to spend the bulk of our time today in chapter 22. Now, the song in chapter 22 was actually written many years earlier when God had delivered David from Saul. We, we get that explanation in verse 1. And by the way, this chapter is basically just a mirror of Psalm 118. So if you went and read Psalm 118, it would sound very much like first, or 2 Samuel 22. Another important note about this song is that this song is basically just a reprise of the Song of Hannah in chapter 1. For those of you who are here, two and a half months ago, do you remember the Song of Hannah? This beautiful song. Both Hannah and David opened their songs by saying, hey, God is a rock. God is a rock, which is a very common way to describe God in Hebrew culture. In our Western minds, we easily miss the significance of this, that the Eastern world tends to talk about God in physical pictures, Right? I don't know if you've ever noticed that about the Old Testament. God is a rock. God is a fortress. We, in Western culture, tend to describe God based on our logic, our emotion. Right? God is our authority. God is gracious. God is my comforter. God is faithful. But it was very common for Hebrew culture to describe God through what you could see. Like, you would never say, God is a cardboard box. Right? Because if I sat on a cardboard box, what would happen to that cardboard box? Yeah, it would collapse, right? That would not be a good description of God. And so notice in verse 2, just look at it. Notice how God is described here. I, I wish we would talk about God like this. It's, it's different than how we talk about him. I mean, look at what he says. The Lord is my rock, my fortress. I mean, think about the images that come to your mind when you think of a fortress, right? The Lord is my fortress, my deliverer. My God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. That at the end of David's life, it's so interesting here. God is rightly pointing us to God. God's not pointing us to David here. God is pointing us to God that he is the rock, the fortress, the shield, the refuge, the horn of salvation. And these describers, the Bible is trying to put in our minds, these describers of God are the soundtrack to David's life. That when we are to think of David, the Bible is telling us this is what we should think of. And yet, that presents a problem for us, doesn't it? It presents a problem for us that's difficult to reconcile because if you've been with us the last two weeks, David isn't exactly the best model for us to look to for how we should live our lives, right? The dude made a real mess of things, a real mess of things. So here's the goal for today. We have two goals as we wrap up this series. First, we are going to ask the question, what can we learn from David's life, just his life as a whole? Um, when we look back at everything that we've talked about, what should we take away? And two, the bigger question, I think probably on most of our minds is, how are we supposed to feel about David? <laughs> like, how, how are we supposed to walk away from what we've talked about the last several weeks and have peace with that? So how are we supposed to feel about 
David. I mean, the Bible describes a man after God's own heart, but as you read through its story, it's hard to reconcile the sin of David and how the Bible describes him. And so what do we do with that? So first, I would say it's important to remember, kind of as an umbrella over this whole thing, is that God did do a great work through David, and that is worth acknowledging. We have to remember that when David became king, Israel was a hot mess, okay? Before David became king, Israel was surrounded by enemies that all wanted to destroy them, to attack them. And David, as king, was able to subdue all of them and bring peace like they hadn't had in a really long time. We see a David that when the people of Israel were cowering from Goliath, David stepped in and said, no, I trust my God. We saw him faithful to God and Saul when Saul wanted to unjustly hunt him down, that despite all of David's faults, God did do a mighty work through him. And so you, we've got to pause there and just acknowledge that that is encouraging to us. That is encouraging to us. See, one of the lessons that we learn from the life of David is that God will work through whoever he chooses to work through. God will work through whoever he chooses to work through, because I think most people believe that God is only capable of working through people that seem like they have it all together. We can easily fall into this trap, that that God works only through people who don't make mistakes like I do. I'm willing to bet that there's some of us in this room who believe that God could never actually work through you in a mighty way. Well, I've made just such, I've just made such a mess of my life. I mean, I've really screwed it up. There are so many people that God could work through that are better than me. We fall into that trap. And if you are someone who believes in that lie, you're believing it in two forms. The first is the lie in the form of theology. You have misunderstood who God is and how God works. To believe that God works only through people who have it all together, people not like you, is to believe, it's to believe that God chooses who he works through based upon their works. Does that make sense? Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then look what he says in verse 10. For we are his workmanship. Workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. God working through you is not dependent on how good you are or how bad you are. God working through you is dependent on one thing, God. And if that's you, if you're someone who doubts that you are someone that God could work through, then your bigger problem is your misunderstanding of grace. See, we tend to understand grace through human eyes. That when we are offended by someone or someone sins against us or betrays our trust, we tend to interpret the grace of God through human eyes. And as human beings, we will say to someone, and some of you may have done this, say to someone who has hurt us, look, I can forgive you, but because of what you've done, you've lost my affection. Or because of what you've done, you've lost my trust. And what can happen without us even realizing it is we ascribe that same kind of mindset to God. That when we sin against God, he treats us the same way that we treat others when they sin against us. Well, yeah, God has forgiven me, but I don't know, he's, he might have lost some of his affection for me. God sees me differently now that I have sinned. 
You ever thought that? That mindset is a complete theological error, and it robs us of the joy that comes from knowing the truth about God. And the truth is there is grace for you on the cross of Jesus, that at the cross, Jesus not only forgave you of your sin, but he wiped it from existence. Reality is not that you did some bad things and God has forgiven you. Reality is that your sin is no more. It's gone, and the Bible calls you a new creation in Christ. And so first, you have misunderstood who God is and how he works. Theology misplaced. We're going to come back to that at the end. And the second form of the lie comes through identity. That if you don't believe that God can and will work through you, then you have an identity problem. See, you're still holding on to the false reality that your identity revolves around you. You still see self, even if it's seeing yourself as the worst person in the world, you still see self as the center of your universe. And so when God works through you, you doubt that anything good can happen because you are focused on yourself and either how good you are and how bad you are. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh by faith, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That we have to understand that it is God through the power of the Holy Spirit that is doing the work in our Lives And that should give us so much joy and freedom. It eliminates the possibility of boasting when God works through us. There is no way for us to claim any good thing that God does through us. And it gives you the freedom to actually enjoy the works of God. Like you don't have to feel guilty when God does something good through you. You ever had that weird feeling? Like God's using me and now I feel guilty about that? It's this trap that the enemy puts on us. Enjoy the giver. You want to enjoy the gift? Enjoy the giver. And the amount of joy we can get by enjoying him is immeasurable. God will use you for his glory. So God, can God work through you? Yes, and he will. His word promises. If God only used people who had it all together, then we would have a very short Bible. Right? You think about it. Abraham, Moses, David, all these guys were a mess. And God chose to use them. And God will choose to use you and you and every single one of us. He chose to work through David, not because of anything in David, but because God chose to do it. So that's the first thing we can learn from the life of David, that God will use whoever he chooses to use. God took a shepherd and made him into a king that would lead to the king of kings. God loves to take the broken and shine his glory through their lives. The second thing that we learn from the life of David is that God will spend our entire, and this is a hard one, God will spend our entire lives teaching us what it means to be dependent on him. And in our dependency, he will reveal how faithful he is. Look at verse 7 in chapter 22. David says, in my distress, I called upon the Lord, to my God I called. And from his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. Now, throughout these uh, two books, we have seen this truth in David's best moments and in his worst, that when David is successful, he gives praise to God. When David is in trouble, he calls upon God. When David sins, 
he repents and calls upon God. And he says, my cry came to his ears. And so the second thing that we learn from David's life is that God is always teaching us in any and every circumstance. He is teaching us how to depend on him. Hudson Taylor, he was a famous missionary in China. If you've never heard of him or heard his story, look him up. Uh, Hudson Taylor famously said, God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold. God wants you to have something far better than riches and gold, and that is helpless dependence on him. We spend most of our lives trying to get to a place where we, where we are not helplessly dependent on anything or anyone, right? Like life is just a game of me trying to be successful, sufficient on my own, and independent. And what we have to learn is that for us, dependence on God is the goal in our lives because it's in our dependence on God that we bring glory to God. And if dependence on God is the objective of our lives, then our weaknesses are gifts that God has given us. Because it is in our weakness where we learn to be dependent, isn't it? Those moments when you've got nothing in yourself that can fix what's happening around you, when you don't have the energy, when you don't have the courage, when you have nothing to offer, in those moments where you say, God, I need you, those moments are gifts. That God is teaching us to be dependent on him, uh, putting in our minds, hey, you need me. You need me. You cannot live with joy without me. Those moments of dependency are gifts. In those moments where your marriage is struggling, you try to fix that on your own and it will fail. But if you depend on God, I promise God will do something great. It may not be immediate. It may take time. But God will work through our dependency every time. If you've got a sin that is just crushing you, You don't know how to confess it. You're scared of what people might think. You don't know how to get out of it. You try to fix that on your own. You try to white-knuckle yourself out of that sin, you will be destroyed. It will destroy you. You depend on God, you actually get to experience freedom and hope. Dependency on God in our lives is the goal. And our weaknesses are gifts. They're hard gifts, but they're gifts that reveal to us just how much we need him. See, it's typically in our weaknesses that lead us to God, and it's typically our strengths that lead us away from God. Those moments where we think we do have it all together, that we do have it figured out, that we're okay, those moments are scary because they lead us away from God. God is always teaching us what it means to truly depend on him. The third thing we see from David's life is that God is our Savior. Look at verse 17. David says, He sent from on high, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. See, remember, David wrote this earlier, right? When David wrote this, he thought God's promise to save him was from his enemies, like Saul and the Philistines. But what he didn't realize and what we don't realize much of the time is that God is not just about saving us from our circumstances, that God saves us from ourselves. I can imagine that at this point in the book, in 2 Samuel, um, like we've talked about already, like most of us don't really know how to f- feel about David, right? I mean, he's seen as the hero of Israel, 
the great king, but the last two weeks, we have, as we looked at his story, they've been rough. Like I mentioned last week, last week took an emotional toll on me. I napped for like four hours last Sunday. I was exhausted. I'm sure you were too. Um, But I think part of that reason why last week just took such an emotional toll on me is because we aren't really sure how to feel or what to think about David. I mean, he's supposed to be this hero of the faith, right? But his faults are massive walls that we just can't ignore. And so these words at the end of David's Life, that they have a d- deeper meaning than, hey, I'm going to save you from your circumstances. I'm going to rescue you from Saul. I'm going to rescue you from the Philistines. There's a deeper meaning here, and it's God, that God is also going to save David from himself. It's the same for you and I. God does not simply save us from our circumstances, but he saves us from ourselves. If you want to put it in theological terms, God saves us from the sin that has corrupted us and killed us. And on our own, without salvation, sin will only produce sin, which will produce death. You know, it's interesting. The book of 2 Samuel doesn't even mention the death of David. I don't know if you read through it at all. And notice that it, it, it doesn't even mention the death of David, which is weird when you think about it, right? I mean, most people think of First and 2 Samuel as the biography of David. And I've never read a biography where the death of the person that's being written about isn't even mentioned. And I think that's because the book of 1 and 2 Samuel isn't actually about David. It's about the God of David. Do you remember the promise that, that we're supposed to keep in mind as we go throughout these two books? We've mentioned it over and over. I've repeated it almost every week. What's the promise? Someone is coming. Someone is coming. Someone is coming. And I hope that you've seen every week in every chapter the deeper layer that these moments in Scripture are not just about history, They're not just about what we can practically learn from David's life. These moments, these chapters are about a promise, a promise of a greater king, the son of David, the anointed, the Messiah that Hannah talks about all the way back in chapter one, the king that every day we crave to know, the king that would be our rock and our salvation. Look at verse 51. He says, great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed to David and who? His offspring forever. At the end of David's life, God does not point us to remember David's life. God aims our attention to David's offspring. And 970 years after David died, that king would come. All those years later, an angel would appear to another group of shepherds. And so to get us ready for Christmas, let me read Luke 2.11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So when David said, my Savior, in verse 3, he had no idea how true that was. So look, David's legacy is not anchored in his good or his bad. We've got to understand this. David's legacy is anchored in the one-sided promise that God had given to him in 2 Samuel 7. Do you remember the promise? David said, I'm going to build you a house, God. And God said what? No, you're not. You're not going to build me a house, David, but your son is going to build a house, and I'm going to establish that house forever. And the basis of the promise was not what David could do for God. The basis of the promise is what God would do for David. And it's the same for us. 
it would be good for us to remember because it's still true today. The legacy of your life, when you think about the end of your life, what are people gonna remember about you? The legacy of your life is not about what you can do for God. The legacy of your life is about what God has done for you. So here's the fourth thing that I think we can learn from the life of David. Our lives are evaluated not on our own works, but on the works of God. We are meant to evaluate David's life, not based on the good or bad that he has done, but we evaluate David's life according to what God has done. And David's life can be summarized in one word, grace. Look at verse 21. Here we go. These verses had me spinning this week. I got lost in the sauce, all right? So let me bring you into the confusing roller coaster of verses 21 through 25, okay? And I could be wrong. I could get fired after this. I'm not sure. Um, Verse 21, David says, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. He says, for I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statues, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. All right, let's pray. No, I'm just kidding. Um, We have some things to unpack here, right? These verses can be rather confusing because we read this and we're like, "Uh, are we talking about the same David here? Blameless, righteous, without guilt is not the way that any of us would use to describe David's life. I mean, would Bathsheba, Uriah, Tamar say those things about David? Probably not. Now, granted, this was written earlier in David's life, but the author purposely chooses to put it at the end here as a summary, essentially, of David's life. So while, yes, it was written earlier, the application for us with where it's at in the Bible is to evaluate the whole of his life. So we have two questions we got to answer here. One, why would David even say these things in the first place? And two, why would the author include these words at the end of this book? I mean, think about it. Even if we didn't know anything about David, right? We didn't know his good. We didn't know his bad. Um, we didn't know all the destruction that we saw the last two weeks. Even if these words on their own, we still wouldn't agree with them, right? I mean, if they were just evaluated on their own merit, according to what the Bible says, we would disagree with what these words say. So if you came up to me and you said, hey, Colton, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I'm blameless. I have done everything God has asked me to do. I've kept all of his rules. I'm cleaned. You would be like, uh, I think we need a new pastor, right? Um, You would say, I don't think so, bro. I mean, the Bible over and over puts a lot of effort into us understanding that we are sinners, right? Puts a lot of effort into us understanding how bad we are, that we have fallen short. I mean, think about the rich young ruler, right? He comes up to Jesus in the gospels and he says, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I have. And anytime you hear a sermon on that, you're like, uh, I think the rich young ruler is a little naive, right? So we read this and we're like, how, why is David saying that? How do we understand this? I think there are three options for why we have these verses at the end of 2 Samuel. The first option is that the Bible is presenting the most polished version 
of David's life. I mean, it's no different than people who put on their best clothes, put on their best smile, and show up to church acting as if life is fine, right? You see this all the time in historical biographies where we get the polished version of the story with all, all the mess. So is the author here just trying to ignore David's past? That's option one. I don't think so. If that were the case, then the author would have left out like the last 13 chapters of 2 Samuel. The same author who wrote this also told us about Bathsheba and Uriah and Tamar and Amnon and Absalom and the wives and the cock. It just goes on and on and on, right? So to do that would not only be an injustice to the truth, but also an injustice to those victims. To present David as blameless would be wrong on so many levels. So I think we can cross out option number one. Now, option two and three is a little more more interesting. The second option that some have attempted to give us here for why these verses are included, and they could be right, is that David is declaring something here called positional righteousness. Positional righteousness in Christ. Um, And this is the way that most Christians think about um, think when they think about their own testimony, when they think about the gospel, that when we talk about our testimony, we tend to talk about, and this is right, and it's good, and it's biblical, we tend to talk about both the bad that we have done, but also what Christ has done, right? That he has redeemed me, that he has restored me. That's how we tend to talk about that. On the cross, God transferred our sin to himself, and he transferred his righteousness to us. And so, therefore, positional righteousness would say David is able to say these things not based on what he has done, right? On all the bad that he's done, but based on what God has done on his behalf. Faith that leads to righteousness. And that is a possibility. That is what is happening here. Now, I don't think that's correct. Um, all of these things that David is saying, think about the words he uses right? I, my, all his rules were before me. I have kept the ways of the Lord from his statues I did not turn aside. I was blameless. I kept myself from guilt. David talks in my's and I's here. So if David is talking about positional righteousness, that's a weird way to do it, isn't it? I mean, he's talking about his, he kept himself from guilt. The statues he followed. So It's clear to me, at least, that David is talking about himself. So I don't think it's positional righteousness. While positional righteousness is true, it's biblical, and all who worship Jesus benefit from the grace that God gives us, I think that explanation is just one part of it. I think there's a deeper layer here. So while positional righteousness isn't untrue, I think there's something deeper happening here, and that leads us to our third option. We've already talked about it today, but it's the reality that you are a new creation in Christ, that you have a righteousness that has been given to you that makes you completely new. You are a new person all together. God has not only restored you, but he has renewed your soul. This is what Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Just listen to what Jesus tells Nicodemus in in verse 3. It says, Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, He cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Great question, Nicodemus. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. 
The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So just like your first birth, I don't know if you remember that, um, just like your first birth, you who are in Christ, you have a second birth. For every believer, there is the day you were born, and then there is the day you were born again. Or maybe it was a season, right? Second, you have no power over that second birth. Just like you had nothing to do with your first birth, you have nothing to do with your second birth. It was God who initiated it, and it is God who made it happen. Your second birth was chosen by God. And when we look at David's life and ask, man, how can he say these things? Here's our answer. Psalm 103.10. Psalm 103.10. So look at what this says. God, if, if God would give you the heart to believe this, your life will be transformed. David says in Psalm 103.10, he does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So keep that in your mind. He does not deal with you, and think about the implications of that. He does not deal with you according to your sin. Now look at what David says in 2 Samuel 22.21. So he does not deal with us according to our sins. And then also David says in 2 Samuel 22.21, the Lord dealt with me according to my what? Righteousness. He does not deal with us according to our sins, but he deals with me according to my righteousness. So in other words, he didn't deal with David according to what he had done. He didn't deal with David according to all the mess he made. We have got to understand this. It will bring us so much joy. David sinned horribly. He sinned horribly. But God dealt with him according to his new birth. Therefore, God does not remember David's sins anymore. And that means that our lives are not defined by our sins, but our lives are defined by the grace of God. So listen, I'm going to talk to those of you in here who you have felt the consequences of your sin. Like you've made some choices that have affected those around you. And I want you to hear me. I am not minimizing what you did. If you were here last week, that was perfectly clear. Your sin has real consequences on you, your family, the people around you. The pain that you caused was real. And for some of you, you will spend the rest of your life trying to earn trust back. There are some relationships that will never be the same for you. So just like we shouldn't minimize sin, we should also be careful not to minimize the good news of the gospel. Let's not replace the lifeblood of the gospel with Kool-Aid so it makes it, us, makes it easier for us to judge somebody else. The good news of the gospel is that according to God, your life is not defined by the sin that you did, but according to what Jesus did on the cross on your behalf. You are not dealt with according to your righteousness, or according to your sin, but you are dealt with according to the righteousness that Christ gave you. The final verdict, hear me, the final verdict on David's life was not abuser, it was not murderer, it was not absent father. The final verdict on David's life, according to the providence of God, is blameless and guilty, and guiltless, sorry. Blameless and guiltless. Some of you might call you divorcee, absent father, alcoholic, porn addict. Whatever titles you give yourself, you need to know. 
He has given you a new birth. You are a new person, and he has given you a new name. And that name is son or daughter, brother or sister. No human being can take that away from you. Nobody can. That title is given to you by God, and he has promised that he will never take it away from you. doesn't matter what you've done. God has brought you here to hear the gospel. No one can take that away. He's better than anything else. And he loves you, and he died. God begins a movement in Acts after Jesus ascends to heaven. And so if there's a final word that we could have on David, I think it should be the same that Peter said. I don't know if you're familiar with this text. So I want to finish um, by leaving in our minds, if we want a final thought on David, it comes from Peter. So if you would, just go ahead and stand with me. And I just want to read this, and I'm going to go slow. I'm not going to read it fast. So how are we to think about David? I think we should think about David the same way that the Bible does, that Peter does. And in Acts 2.29, Peter, standing in front of thousands of people, he would say this, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, 2 Samuel 7, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And verse 37 says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? It's the same question for us. What do we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And look at this last verse. For this promise, the promise of the gospel, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off everyone whom the Lord, our God, calls to himself.